Anybody recognize the name Sir Nicholas Winton? Anybody recognize that name? There's a couple. Okay. Sir Nicholas Winton um, is uh, he's a pretty incredible man. He died in 2014. Are you get this? Are you ready? At the age of 106. Yeah. Um, if you can imagine yourself, just try with me for a second. Um, in 1938, he was 29 years old, and he was a stockbroker in England. Um, he had uh, he had he had decided to take a trip with some of his friends. He kind of was connected in a in the circle and influence of of people that were pretty well connected politically. They understood what was happening at the time. If you imagine, 1938 was a pretty disruptive time in our world um, with world wars going on all around. And um, and he was going to take a trip to Switzerland for skiing and just to kind of get away. Um, when he decided at the last minute to change his trip, and he decided to go to to Prague, is that how you say it? Prague, Czechoslovakia. And um, the reason he went there is because his parents were Jewish, and uh, he knew that there was some some something happening with Nazi Germany. Um, he he and some of his friends that were connected politically had this this understanding or this thought that 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 was where Hitler was headed um, with his army. And he wanted to go and kind of see what was happening, if there was anything that he could do to help. And so he went into Prague, and he started kind of getting the landscape of what was happening. And he became to he started to get this crazy burden for for the Jewish people um, there in in Prague. Um, he he decided, what can I do though? Um, what can one man do? I mean, there were thousands. Tens of thousands of Jews living in Prague at the time. And he was just one guy with limited resources as a stockbroker in England. And, and the truth is, is that it was actually um, not against the law, but, but countries were not allowing for the Jewish people or for anybody in Prague to actually leave and to go into their country. And so it was really hard to get a visa. Um, it was really hard to, to, I think they had to cross the Netherlands and the Netherlands wasn't allowing anybody to enter into their country. They were kind of just said, hey, there's a war going on. We're not having all these invaders, not invaders, but all these you know, refugees coming. We can't do this. And so they had shut down their border. And so he decided what, what, what could he do as just one person? And so he began, to, um, he began to do a little research. And he discovered that there was a law in England that allowed children to move to England to go to boarding school as long as they had a host family, a visa, and 50 pounds worth of money to get them back when, when, um, when boarding school was over. And, and, um, and Sir Nicholas Winton, Nicholas Winton at the time, he wasn't a sir, um, Nicholas Winton said, that's my inn. And so he began to, to reach out to his friends, his connected friends, and to the people that he knew, and he began to raise money to begin to purchase visas and put money in these children's account so that he could go back to Prague and get these children, um, these Jewish children, out before Hitler invaded. And so in uh, March 14th, um, he made his first run into Prague with these children, with these visas, and finding all of these host families for them to be in. Um, and he got 20 children out that first day. The very next day, are you catching this? The very next day, Hitler um, actually invaded Czechoslovakia. 
And so he realized the window is closing. You know, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this in a hurry. And so he headed back to England and began to even get more intense and more passionate and more um, just dedicated to this cause. And, and he started rallying these people in these homes. And, and over the next couple months, he was able to rescue 669 Jewish children out of the country of Prague. The day that Hitler made it into Prague... There were 200 children waiting on a train to get out that were unable to get out. The Jewish people, I get choked up at this part of the story. The Jewish people that were there in Prague at the time um, were later taken to Auschwitz. And 78,000 of them lost their lives. 78,000. If you go to Prague, I've never been. But if you go to Prague, there's actually a synagogue called the Pincus. I think it's how you say it. The Pincus um, Synagogue that has a list of every single Jewish person that lost their lives in Auschwitz. Um, that were from that community in the surrounding community around Prague. 669 children were saved by Nicholas Winton. And here's the crazy thing. Is that very few people knew about it. Very few people knew. It wasn't until 40 years later in 1988 when his wife was going through some documents um, in their attic and she found a register of all of these children's names and the communities that they were from and the homes that they went to that they began to piece together this picture of what Sir Nicholas Winton had done. In a, in a British program called, I think it was called That's Life or, or, yeah, it's called That's Life in 1988. They actually showed, they actually, um, they actually did a, 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 a an episode about Nicholas Winton and we are, we actually have a short clip of that and I just want you guys to watch this real quickly. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. (laughs) And it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? What a powerful moment. What a powerful moment. Um, It wasn't just their children. I mean, think about this for a second. 
it wasn't just that 669 people um, that he saved, but it was the generation after generation after generation that were saved because of what he did. Here's my question for you this morning. At the end of your life, and you're standing before our Heavenly Father, and he says, what did you do with the time that you had here on earth? Are you ready? Who will stand for you? Who will stand at those pearly gates and said, that person, this person made a difference in my life. They loved me. Jesus, they told me about you. Who will stand for you? Of the 200 kids that were on the train the day that Hitler made it to the train station, only two survived Auschwitz. Sir Nicholas Winton, he mattered. It mattered to all those lives and generations to come. Jesus told his disciples, he said this, he said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. You. He said, if anyone's sins are going to be forgiven, they're going to be forgiven because of you. He said, if anyone's sins are not going to be forgiven, they're not going to be forgiven because of you. He told his disciples this in his last moment with the disciples here on earth. He says, I want you to go into all the world teaching them to obey all my commands, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I have taught you. Paul wrote, he says, we are therefore God's ambassadors. God, as if God were making his appeal through us, come back to God. Do you realize that when we cross that line from this life to the next that the people that will be standing there with us will be standing there because of what we did here on this earth. Because of what we shared. Because of how we loved in Jesus' name. I wonder who's going to stand and say it was because of you. That's my charge for us today. We're in this series, Can I Get a Witness? And we're talking about that. How do we share who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives? If you have your Bibles, if you have your iPhones, if whatever, um, our text this morning is John chapter 1, verse 40 through 49. And I want to read this to you. This is what the text says. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, you ready? The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Catching this? The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It's like us saying today, California? Can anything good come out of California? I'm sorry, that was cheap joke, cheap joke. Um, where was I at? <laughs> 
Nathaniel asked. He says, Philip says this. He says, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you. Oh, never mind. We're supposed to stop right there. Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What happens here? Andrew, who does he find? He finds Peter. Peter finds Nathanael. And the question I have for you this morning is, who have you found? That's what we're supposed to be about as followers of Jesus. Who have you found? And that's what I want to unpack today. And the first thought is this this morning, as we unpack this idea of who have you found, is that we have to recognize how open others are to Jesus. We have to recognize how open others are to Jesus. Why is this important? It's important because our natural, just part of us, we think people don't really want to hear about God. And that's just simply not true. The opposite is actually true. What you discover when you do research, like the Barna Group has done research on this, they come back in studies and in research and they say that 80% of people, 80% believe that there is a God. 80%. And if you ask if, if, if a person believes in, in just spirituality as a whole, it's even more than that. The deal is they just don't know Jesus is who they're looking for. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. If you have your notes, follow along with me. It says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, are you ready? The harvest is what? Great. He looked out and he says, The harvest is great. But, you ready? The workers are what? Few. He says the harvest is great. You look in this world, you look in this community that we're in, the harvest is ripe. It's great. The problem is that the workers are few. So he says this, so pray. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more harvest. Right? No. Ask him to send more what? Workers into his fields. He says the problem is not that the people, the problem is not our community, the problem is not our neighbors, the problem is not the harvest. People are ripe and ready to come to know the Lord. The problem is the workers. There's opportunity everywhere around us. We just need people who are open to sharing what God is doing in their lives. A friend of mine was pastoring a church in Pennsylvania. He said, uh, this was in the early mid eighties. And he says, we were currently meeting in a, in a hotel and they grew to like 200 people. They were meeting in a little conference room. They grew to 200 people and they finally got to the place where they were re- ready to purchase or to build or to do something. And as they were searching into the community, they found this old, really old, small church building. They said, for where we were as a church, that was perfect. It was, it was old. It had been there a long time. And so Palm Sunday, 
they, um, they gathered together as a church and they went into the community and they handed out um, laminated phone book covers. Now, for everyone who's younger than me, a phone book is something that you open up and you and alphabetically it lists businesses' names and their telephone numbers. You guys remember those? Anybody? And so it was a great outreach. And so they went into their community and they handed out 300 phone book covers covers to their neighbors, and they just simply said, hey, we're a new church, we bought this building, we want to be good neighbors, if there's anything that we can do for you, just let us know, we, we just want to be a blessing to your family, and we want to invite you to church next Sunday. So next Sunday comes, which is Easter Sunday, it's their first big worship service in this new, small, old church building, and six new families came. And they said they were just beside themselves. I mean, that's a pretty good return on handing out 300 phone book covers. And they were just ecstatic and excited. And one of the families that came that day were the Dwyers. The Dwyers' backyard actually bordered the church property. And they had owned that house since 1948. And they started coming to the church. Um, my, my pastor buddy said that that Sunday, that Easter Sunday, what, Diane, the mother of the family, gave her life to the Lord. That following fall, their son Tony gave his life to the Lord in that little church. The following year on Easter Sunday, Big Jim, the daddy, surrendered his life to the Lord in that little small old church. And, and my friend was meeting with them one day. He was just, you know, there, he was at the church office and they bordered each other and he said sometimes I would just go over there and grab a cup of coffee coffee, and we'd stand on their porch and just talk about life and he was just standing there one day he said Jim he says this church has bordered your family's home since 1948 and you've never come before why is that you don't believe what he said he said I was never asked I was never asked and and that's why That's why I never came. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Just a simple ask. All around us, there are people who are open to coming to church, who are open to hearing about Jesus, who are open to what God is doing in your life. We just have to simply open our mouths. Studies, studies say that, that, that 40% of people, when asked if they'd be open to coming to a worship service, 40% have said yes. Yeah, 40% said, yeah, I'd be willing to go if they were asked. 89% said that they were somewhat willing, you know, maybe, 89. That's 9 out of 10 are somewhat willing to say, yeah, I would check it out. That means 1 in 10 gives an absolute no. That's pretty good odds. It's a coin flip, 50-50, that that person will say, yeah, I'll, I'll go check out your church. I'll check out and see what God is doing. Or maybe not God, but I'll check it out. Here's the problem. Are you ready? Here's the real problem with the church. Studies show that only 2% of church goers, regular church attenders, invite someone to their place of worship every year. Two. That means 98% of the people who, who say that they're regular attenders in a church don't ever bother inviting someone to their church family. That's the problem. It's not the harvest. Jesus says the harvest is ripe. The problem is the workers. 
the workers are few. Most people know that they're looking for something. They just don't know that that thing is Jesus. We have to recognize how open people are to Jesus. Some of us think, well, 98% of people aren't doing it. That leaves me off the hook. That's the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong way to look at it. We hold the hope of the world and the person of Jesus in the palm of our hands. And we have the opportunity to share him with this world. Are you willing to do that? Here's a second thought. Is that we have to realize that God's primary way of reaching the world is through our relationships. When we have, when we think about this idea of people finding Jesus, we have this thought, this thought in our minds that, that, that it's some sort of evangelism program at our church that our church runs. That's how we reach people through our evangelism program. And it's just not true. When you look at the Old Testament and how people came to know God, it was through families. What did he say? He told the people who were leading the Israelites, what I tell you, I want you to pass on to who? Your children. So they will pass it on to your children's children. When you look in the New Testament, the book of Acts, it was person to person, house to house. It was being made known who God was. In Mark, there was a man's life who was radically changed by Jesus. He was demon-possessed. It's found in Mark chapter 5. And he was living in a tomb. This is as Jesus, or in a, in a graveyard area. This says Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. Are you ready? Listen to what he said. Read it with me. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is looking at this guy. He says, don't keep it to yourself. You have friends and family who have seen the mess in your life. Now go home and tell them how the Lord has set you free. Tell them what God has done for you. That's how the good news gets spread. We hear the word evangelism. We think that man on the corner holding the Bible and the bullhorn, you know, and screaming about Jesus. And that occasionally works. But your best opportunity to sharing is the people that God has placed in your life every single day. When I became a youth pastor at my last church in Oklahoma City at Chartel, um, we had an after-school program that uh, that met on Wednesdays. And so school would get out at about 3 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock, we had, um, we had our classes, 6.30. And so we had all these teenage kids that, that would either go home and come back. And so they decided to have an after-school program so that kids could leave right after school, come to church and hang out and play basketball because they had a huge gym. And, and they would serve them pizza and play video games. And they had computers all over the place. It was just a cool place to hang out. One of the kids there was really passionate about inviting kids to church. His name was Colin. And so it was his mission, his eighth grade and ninth grade year. He said, I'm going to invite as many kids as I can to come to our church. And he wasn't really super concerned about their spiritual life. He just liked hanging out with all of them. And so he invited them like crazy. He invited this kid named Cody Curley. And Cody never really got fully connected with our youth group. But he invited a kid named Jordan Davis. 
And Jordan Davis became one of our key leaders in our youth ministry over the next four years. And he played drums in our worship band. He later went to Oklahoma Baptist University and he gave his life, his Lord, in full-time ministry. And now he's in Texas serving as a pastor, a youth pastor, as he get his master's degree in Waco. Crazy story. He also invited this kid named Tim Heller. We called him Tiny Tim because he was tiny. And Tim... Um, Tim said, I, I decided to come because you had two things at your church, pizza and girls. And what better things for a junior high boy to hang out with as pizza and girls. And I played basketball. And so he started coming. And what was cool is from that pizza and girls and basketball, Tim ended up giving his life to the Lord. And now he's a youth pastor in Ohio who's given his life to teaching other teenagers about Jesus And I'm so proud of what God is doing in those kids' life. But here's the deal, is that Tim's story and Jordan's story probably wouldn't have happened in that context if it wasn't for a kid named Colin that just liked hanging out with them and invited them to church. It may have never happened. We are the link of God's grace to people in our lives. We can't forget that God wants to reach them through us. Here's a third thought. Are you ready? Sometimes a simple touch for Jesus has a staggering impact. If you go on YouTube, there are lots of really cool videos that you can watch about Sir Nicholas Winton. But what's staggering to think about is that it wasn't just about the 669 kids that he helped, but it was about their kids and their great and their grandkids and their great-grandkids that never would have had a chance to live if it wasn't for what he did on that train of getting them out of Prague. That impact is unbelievable. Think about our text that we left in John chapter 1. It says, Andrew went to who? His brother, whose name is what? Peter. Was it Andrew? Yeah, Philip and Nathaniel, Andrew and Peter. And he said, did, now the question that I have is, did, did Andrew have any idea what Peter was going to do and who Peter was going to become? No, it was just his brother, right? But if you look and you know anything about the life of Peter, if you read about the, in, in the book of Acts, you would see this amazing person who do radical things for God. In Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 2, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. And those who accepted his message, are you ready? Were baptized. And about how many? 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's the thing is we don't realize that when we feel that nudge, we don't realize the potential that person may have to do something amazing for God. Anybody recognize the name Edward Kimball? Probably not. Edward Kimball in the mid-1800s was leading a Sunday school class to a bunch of boys. And uh, if you've ever led a Sunday school class to a bunch of boys you know how frustrating and how crazy those boys can be, right? So he's leading the Sunday school class, and he said, I'm just, he was a very shy and quiet guy, and so it was out of his, his comfort zone to begin with to just be leading a Sunday school class of junior high boys, but he really felt like this was something called, he was called to do. But he was also a little bit frustrated and a little bit concerned about these boys because some of them just didn't seem to get it. 
And he was really worried about this one kid named Dwight who always fell asleep during the message and during the sermon. Like some of you are nodding off right now, but hey, that's okay. And so, and so he was really concerned about Dwight. And so he decided one day to visit Dwight where he worked. And I guess you went to work really young back in those days. Um, and so he went to, he, Dwight worked at a shoe store. And, um, and so he decided to go to that shoe store and share with Dwight about the Lord. And, and it, it, you, you can read some stories about this moment. He says he walked in and he was scared and he was shy and he didn't know what to say. And he said he, he walked up to, to Dwight and he put his hand on his shoulder and he put his, fo- his foot on a shoe box. And he said, Dwight, do you want to come to Christ? He said, I didn't know any other way to say it. Do you want to come to Christ? And it shocked him when Dwight said, yes. I do. So in that moment, he led Dwight to the Lord. Are you ready? He walked out of that office or out of that shoe store completely discouraged, though. He's like, he walked out and he said, I don't, I don't know if Dwight meant it. I don't know if it really, if he meant it or was he just trying to get out of the situation? So he said yes and he just walked out. But here's the thing, Dwight meant it. Dwight meant it. Dwight's full name, for some of you who know theology and history, was, is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is one of the revolutionary, maybe, evangelists that, that traveled over two continents sharing about the person of Jesus. In June 17, June 17, 1873, he was in Liverpool, England. And he was doing some crusades, and they weren't going very well um, at first. But as the crusades continued to go on, is that all of a sudden, kind of a dam burst. And just this amazing, outpouring, powerful moment of God took place. And he said he, he was, st- he stopped by a Baptist chapel and he met a scholar there by the name of F.B. Meyer. And he was talking to F.B. Meyer about what God was doing. And, and that conversation just set F.B. Meyer's heart on fire. And he said, you know what, I, I just don't want to do what I'm doing right now. I just don't want to be a scholar any longer. I want to go back with you to America because I want to do what you're doing and making God's name great. And so he followed D.L. Moody back to America and, and, and walked with him and taught with him until eventually he started doing his own, um, his own crusades. F.B. Meyer found himself at Northfield Bible Conference. While he was there, he began to challenge the people And he challenged them with this. He said, are you willing to give everything for Christ? And then he said, if you're not willing, are you willing to be willing to give everything for Christ? And it was that statement, that remark that captured the heart of J. Wilbur Chapman, who at the time was struggling with his, his belief on if he should say, stay in ministry or not. And it was in that moment he decided that he was going to become a traveling evangelist. And he recruited a young baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday to follow with him and to preach with him and to travel with him to make God's name great. Eventually, Billy Sunday decided to go out on his own and to become an evangelist and to preach about the person of Jesus. And he went to Charlotte, North Carolina. And he preached a revival. You guys got to stay with me. He preached a revival um, to a group of businessmen. And it was in that revival that this passion was developed in these businessmen about reaching their community for Christ. 
And they decided a couple years later to do a huge revival in their community, and they invited a gentleman by the name of Mordecai Ham to actually do that revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. On October 8th, 1934, Mordecai Ham was sitting in his hotel room, completely discouraged because the revival wasn't going the way he wanted to, and the response wasn't happening the way he wanted, and the return wasn't going, and people weren't getting saved like he thought. And he wrote this on a piece of paper. Are you ready? Give us a Pentecost here. Pour out your spirit tomorrow. He had no idea until years later how answered that prayer was. The next night, get this, a 16-year-old kid came forward and surrendered his life to Christ. His name, some of you might know this, was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has shared the gospel with more people across this globe than anyone else in the history of time. 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel because of Billy, the pastor to presidents. All because, are you tracking with me? A shy Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball mustered up the courage to tell one of his students, Dwight, about the person of Jesus. You have no idea when you're being nudged by God to do something. You have no idea that that moment could be a trigger for an incredible explosion for what God wants to do in this world. Andrew had no idea that finding his brother for Jesus would rock this world. And neither do you. Let me give you one last thought. You ready? Remember that God already has his hand on those he is laying on your heart. Remember that God already has his hand on those he is laying on your heart. Sometimes when we feel this nudge of God that we should invite someone or we might ought to say something to someone, we think this. Every once in a while we feel the stress of that moment and they and we think, why would they want to hear about this? Why would they want to hear about God? What we have to remember, are you ready? Is that wherever we're going, God's already been there. He's already been there. I love the story back in John chapter 1 when Philip goes to Nathaniel and they talk about this Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what good can come from Nazareth? He walks up and Jesus looks at him and says, ah, now there's a guy. There's a stand-up guy. And where no deceit is found. And how does Nathaniel respond? He's like, how do you, you don't, how do you even know me? And Jesus says, before Philip even came to you, I saw you underneath that fig tree. Before Philip ever got there, God already had his hand and his eyes on Nathaniel. That's why I told you last week that we make this idea of our sharing our faith way too complicated. Like, like we have to be the one to win people to Jesus. Can I just set you free? We don't win anyone to God. God draws people to himself. We just have to be willing to say something. John chapter 6 verse 44. 
says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws them. What could happen for us if each and every day of our life, and instead of making sharing our faith some burdensome, worrisome thing, what if we started every single day of our life simply saying, God, I believe all around me you're talking to people. I believe all around me you have your hand on people's lives. Would you help me to know what to say to them? And would you give me the courage to say it? Every day, We, every day I, walk by people who are completely lost and searching for God. What if we just decided to be the ones to help them find him? What if we were willing? Who have you found? The staff and I have been talking about this idea of how do we, how do we put this out there for our people? I mean, what if we accepted the challenge today to say in 2019, if every single one of us decided today to just invite one? Everyone invite one. Everyone reach one. Think about what could happen for the kingdom of God and for our small little church called One Community. If everyone just reached one You have no idea what God can do through that person. You have no idea what God can do through you. You just have to be willing. They are open. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this message that you've put on my heart. And Lord, I just pray that as we listen I just pray that as we open up our hearts and lives to you, that every single one of us would be encouraged and and be energized and be, even for some of us, be convicted about what we do and don't do with what you've given us. This message of reconciliation you've placed in our hands. You said, this is my command to you, that you go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. You said, I have placed the keys of the kingdom in your hands. Anyone whose sins are going to be forgiven are going to be forgiven because of you. And anyone whose sins are not going to be forgiven are not going to be forgiven because of you, because of your willingness to share to tell, to connect, to love. Father, we are your ambassadors. It's as if you're making your appeal through us. Come back to God. Lord, may we all come back to you and bring somebody with us. Father, when I stand before you on that day of judgment, when I pass from this world to the next, Father, it's my hope and my prayer that the way I lived my life, the love that I showed, the grace that I lived with, as imperfect as I am, 
will have drawn a few people to you. That they would know your love and your mercy and your grace. I hope that's all our prayers, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I gave you three putting into practice this week. One is pray. Pray daily for people that you know you need Jesus. Two is to think. To think about some opportune times that you might have to invite them to a service or to an event. And three, it's to ask God to make you sensitive to his nudges of speaking to those around you who are looking for him. Pray, think, and ask.